Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, preseason football is here. This kicks off our Better Rivals Division preview series this week. We've got Brandon Schultz from the Seahawkers Podcast, who was so gracious to grace us with his presence, despite the division rivalry. And we'll kick off with some news, some training camp insights from Jeff Dini, a data analyst with Pro Football Focus. Jeff is in the Bay Area. He saw some players with his eyeballs, and he's here to tell us all about them. All right, Jeff, here to do the news. Welcome to the Better Rivals podcast. Thanks, Oscar. It's an honor to be on the show. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for joining. You were at training camp not too long ago, so I'm just going to pepper you with questions about what you saw because you were eyeballs on the ground, and there's value in eyeballs on the ground. Fire away. All right, so I know that you're pretty excited about a couple of players. Uh, give me your most impressive player that you saw while you were observing practice. I mean, I think at least as far as some of the younger guys, I mean, Dante Pettis was a guy I was very excited about. I mean, I watched a lot of Pac-12 football last year and did some, a lot of you know charting and work with the Pac-12 football. and So I saw a lot of him last year, was a huge fan. Even that being said, I thought the Niners dropped him a little higher than I was expecting him to go, but I mean, He's looked really good in camp. I mean, just seeing him in person, his quickness, whether it's just you know getting off the line or just getting open, is really evident. The route running is really solid, especially for somebody just coming into the league. And I mean, one thing I, I found out when I was there was that you know, he ran, I think, a four or five uh, at his pro day, uh, four or five forty, and he had said that his ankle was still bothering him at the time, and he wasn't one hundred percent. That at some point at Washington, he had actually they had timed at a four point three nine. So I think. The straight line speed is probably there that we maybe didn't see during you know during the his pro day earlier this year. I mean, really, when it, when I watch him on tape, I see someone who is is fast enough. You know, there, there's exactly. ga- there's game speed, and then there's there's kind of clock speed. And right. I, you know, you we we salivate so much over you know a tenth of a second difference, four three four versus four four. But at some point, you you got to think to yourself, okay, are you fast enough? And and he is fast enough, I think. But what's more exciting is that he is quick enough. And he has the, yeah. the body control to separate and not get jammed on the line and then do some really amazing things, especially in the red zone. So I think it's definitely someone to be excited about. And it's good to know that he's one of the more impressive players that you saw. Absolutely. I mean, I think you just made a point about where, you know, I, he's not that prototypical big receiver you would think of, of as a red zone threat. But I think he's definitely someone who could be a red zone threat this season that, you know, the Niners were lacking last year. All right. So who, what's the what's the buzz on Josh Garnett? I mean, dude's dude's injured at this point. He is is likely not going to play in the preseason opener here on Thursday. And it really looks like a, a one and a half man competition between Mike Person and the, the vestiges of Jonathan Cooper. So what's <laughs> yeah, going on? I, I don't know how good Garnett's chances were to make the roster before he got hurt. But I think now that he's they've kind of shut him down for a week. I mean, I think his, his chances are pretty slim. I mean. You saw Shannon earlier, I think last week, kind of seemed like he was a little bit peeved that he had missed practice one day and kind of said, oh, I hope he comes back the next day. And then they end up shutting him down for a week. So, you know, I mean, I kind of see a situation similar to to Lake and Tomlinson, except in the opposite, where, you know, last year, Tomlinson was a first-round pick. had kind of been a bust, and it was entering his third season with Detroit, and they shipped him off. And, you know, the Niners got him for a fifth-round draft pick which you know, ended up being a pretty good value. I could see once Cooper comes back and is, is healthy and the Niners see what they have at, at right guard with between either him or Person or, or Magnuson, that if they can find someone who'd be willing to you know give up a late pick for Garnett, I, mean, I, I could see that work because I don't see him making the 53 roster at this point. 
I was really surprised actually by by Coach Shanahan's comments when he was like, you know, I, I think he's going to be here tomorrow or I hope he's here tomorrow. I think he, he said, I hope he plays tomorrow. And then I'd be surprised if he didn't. And then he didn't. And I was like, oh, ooh, that's not yeah. good. That's, and that's yeah, the first I mean, time I can remember a Shanahan saying something like that about an injured player. Exactly. That was the first time he kind of called someone out, you know, with that. So I kind of, you know, he didn't show up the next day or you know, he showed up, but didn't, you know, show up practice to participate. And then not only that, they said shut him down for a week where he's going to miss this game. And I mean, we don't know how much longer after that. And it's the same knee as last year. And I mean, I think it's just the odds are stacked against between, you know, he was a guy from the previous regime. He didn't play very well as rookie year. He missed all of last year. And then, I mean, the big thing is he doesn't have the versatility on the line that, you know, a Mike person or a Magnuson have, where they both can play center or guard. And even in Magnuson's case, can play tackle where, you know, those, those guys are so valuable as a backup, you know, on game day, where if someone goes down, they can, play various positions where Garnett's pretty much a guard. So, I mean, I think the writing's on the wall with him, unfortunately. All right, so let's talk about the secondary a little bit. I'd love to hear your impression on some of the young guys because there are the fighting Tarvariuses, uh, Tarvarius Moore <laughs> and Tarvarius McFadden. And then you've got, of course, the you've just got other young players in the secondary because it seems pretty established up at the up at the top. But then, especially with Jimmy Ward's injury, I'm hoping these players got a few more snaps. So, what were your overall impressions from uh, Tarverius Moore, who I'm super interested in just because of his physical comp, Tarverius McFadden, who seems to have had a good day today in practice, uh, about their where they are as corners uh, during practice. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Tavares Moore is a very interesting guy just because of his size and length and his spark numbers. Um, you know, I think he's kind of going to be a guy who kind of gets the kind of the Witherspoon treatment last year. Witherspoon was inactive for the first few games last year, and they didn't really – they kind of brought him along really slowly. I think that's going to be the same thing with Moore this year where he may not make, you know, the game day, the 46, the first, you know, whatever, three, four, six weeks or so, and then maybe they kind of ease him into the lineup. Um, you know, the other guy I think is going to be interesting is DJ Reed who I think is probably going to get a lot of reps on Thursday night with, with K1 Williams going down. Um, and he's going to get a chance to prove himself at the slot position with, you know, um, I think you know, they're looking like to try to keep Ward on the outside. So um, I think he's someone who can really fit into that, you know, kind of backup slot corner role. Do you think Ward gets traded before the year? <sighs> Possibly. I mean, the only reason I would think he would not is I'm not sure what his value is with him being you know having a guaranteed deal was at eight and a half million dollars where yeah you have a guy who's injury prone is going to get eight and a half million regardless i don't know what anyone else is going to want to give up for him but i mean the talent is there for the most part where he can contribute but i mean it's just he hasn't been able to stay healthy yet i mean it's the same thing with armstead too all right any other tidbits from camp that you think might be important for us to know especially ones you think you can't share because those are probably the ones that we want to know <laughs> I mean, I think Solomon Thomas has looked really good, especially kind of, you know, the drills, pass rushing. I mean, I think the other interesting thing is he's been getting a lot of reps rushing the passer inside, which I think is huge. I mean, that's where he did a lot of his damage at Stanford and didn't really play there much last year. And when he did, the short, the few snaps he did, he was definitely more effective, um, productive rushing the passer from the inside. So I think they kind of recognize that. And so I think that's one thing I'll look forward to. Maybe, you know, what we see Thursday is when he does, you know, on these, you know, third downs or in these passing downs, as he rushes the pass from the inside and how effective he can be. All right. So let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about the preseason game that happens here on Thursday. What are some of the things that you'll be looking for in this preseason game, knowing that Kyle Shanahan stated that his, his starters are going to follow a pretty common regimen for the preseason? They're going to do maybe a drive in game one. 
a quarter in game two, a half, maybe more in game three, and then rest in game four. So what are you going to be looking for when you're watching this preseason opener? Yeah, I mean, it looks like at least the offensive starters are going to get maybe one one series, and that's probably it, which is, I think is fine. I'm obviously, the main purpose of preseason is making sure no one no one gets hurt. Um, uh, but I think you know some of the, some of the rookies I look forward to seeing when we talk about Pettis, um, Richie James from Middle Tennessee State's another guy, seventh round pick who you had really good rookie camps, had some he looked good in training camp here, you know, had put up some monster numbers in college, you know, sophomore and junior years. Uh, his junior year, he was second in the nation in receiving yards from the slot behind Trent Taylor, in fact. So um, looking to see what he can do in live action. And I mean, the other guy, actually not a rookie, but is Joe Williams. Um, what he can do and if he can kind of force Shanahan's hand as far as a roster spot. Because, you know, do they keep three halfbacks? Do they keep four? Obviously, you have, you know, McKinnon and Brita. And I think, you know, Williams is obviously more talented than, than Mostert is. I mean, you know, from on offense, but... You know, Mostert was a stud on special teams last year as a gunner. And so, I mean, he's got a lot of value there. You know, so what's going to happen with that roster spot? I mean, I think the interesting possibility there is, you know, you have Ruben Foster suspended the first two games. And so they're going to have an extra roster spot there that he might be someone that they can carry for two weeks or if they have to make a decision in week three. It's actually a really good point about the extra roster spot due to the suspension. I always thought they'd just carry an extra linebacker there, but they might just try and risk it. And, and take a couple more weeks to make the decision. That's uh, that's actually a great point. I'm actually super pumped to see Joe Williams as well. The I'm interested to see how Mike McGlinchey and Weston Richburg do, just as new offensive line mates. Mike McGlinchey, basically, we talked about last week who we thought the rookie of the year would be, and and both David and I thought, oh, it has to be Mike McGlinchey. If it's not Mike McGlinchey, then, then I don't know what exactly that means for the year because you do need someone at the tackle position. It's a really, really valuable position. And I think McGlinchey is going to have some up and down snaps. It's going to not be smooth sailing from the get go. And so I'm hoping he gets some of those out during the preseason. But Joe Williams and Tarvarius Moore are the two players that I'm excited to see. And I'm hoping Tarvarius Moore gets gets a decent amount of snaps because it, he he's a conversion and you don't have a lot of tape on him outside of that cover for safety. So I'm interested to see what that transition has been, what it looks like and how he looks on the field. Yeah, I mean, they have so many of the young quarterback or corners. It's going to be interesting to see how they kind of divvy up the reps in the preseason. All right, well, that's it in terms of news. Just like we were talking about earlier, no news is good news at this point. Absolutely. All right, well, uh, thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll have you back on to talk some news a little bit later on in the year. Sounds good. Anytime, Oscar. And we move from the rundown to our division previews. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be having someone on from SB Nation sites or from other friends of the pod to preview the other teams in the division because we figure you're probably all into watching and keeping up with 49ers news, but you probably don't keep up with the news from the division as closely as you do the Niners. So the goal will be to answer some core questions for these other teams that will dictate their 2018 season, much like we did for the 49ers in 2018. And we start with the Seattle Seahawks, who have lots of questions coming into the season and to help answer them. We have Brandon Schultz from the Seahawkers podcast, friend of the pod for a very, very long time on to talk about whether or not the Seahawks are going to be able to sustain success and push for a playoff spot or completely dismantle and go into full rebuild mode over the course of 2018. Brandon, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oscar, I'm well. I'm ready for football season to be here. We're just days uh, preseason. We're kicking off. 
and it just yeah, it feels it, like hours now at this point. It's like football foreplay. You know, it's it's not quite the main event, but you know, it's still worth going through the motions because ultimately, at the end of it all, there is light. And just after the first preseason game finishes, you're you don't want to see any more preseason. You just want regular season. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. This is going to be the first of our preview episodes for the division. And while I've been on your podcast before, I was just on earlier this week, actually, for your show that was released. Uh, I think this might be the first time that you are on our show. I think so. I so appreciate you uh, having me on your show for for the first time. This is cool. Of course, man. Of course. So let's talk about the Seahawks because it's not a rebuild. It's apparently a reload, as Trent Baalke would say. And so what we did last week with the the Niners season preview was we talked about some key questions that are going to define the Niners in 2018. And so I thought we'd keep the same structure for the questions and the preview that are really going to define the Seahawks in 2018, because there's a lot of questions around what it is that you're going to be able to do. Football Outsiders has you at 8.3 mean wins, which puts you in the playoff contender area more often than not, about 42% of the time. Pro Football Focus has Seattle at 8.26 wins. Your chances of winning the division are at 28.4%, uh, which puts you second in the division. Mm. Probability of making the playoffs, 387 And your strength of schedule, based on PFF ELO, is 16th. So not terrible, not great. Overall, PFF and both Football Outsiders have you right around that second in the division, which isn't bad, all things considering the, the fact that this is, seems to be a very tumultuous year for the Seahawks. Well, we actually came up with a name to really describe this offseason for the Seahawks. And we called it the Hawkpocalypse because in no season throughout Seahawks history have they lost that many players with Pro Bowl caliber experience in one offseason. I mean, you just run, down, just run down the defense, right? You got Cliff Averill up front. You got Michael Bennett. Uh, then you have Richard Sherman, who you know well now. And yep. you got Cam Chancellor. You know, among just with those four guys... On defense, and then you go on offense, Jimmy Graham, and you have, and Paul Richardson wasn't a Pro Bowl caliber player, but you know he he got a significant deal through the Redskins, and you can you can argue that he's he was an impact player for the Seahawks last year. So let's talk about the defense for a second because that's that's the first question I think that will define the Seahawks season is whether or not the defense is going to be able to sustain its traditional high level of play. You already listed the key departures. One you left off was Chris Richard, defensive coordinator, Mm -hmm. who left, sure, and and it's not a player, but it's still a defensive coordinator that was fairly tenured. And and is is that something that you're worried about? Because the Legion of Boom era is it's done. It is gone. It is donezo. I'm pretty sure that we have the same number of Legion of Boom players on our respective teams. (laughs) We both have one. We've got Sherman. You've got Earl Thomas. Maybe. We'll get to that one in a second. Well, and we but, have Byron Maxwell who came back last year. I think you and and he came in after Browner. You know, you have like that rotating member uh, that that just there is of, yeah. <laughs> at that spot. And Byron the Maxwell, the member of the boy was, band, and nobody yeah, remembers. Right, right. <laughs> so maybe a half. Maybe we have one and a half. And like you, like you're saying with Earl, maybe we don't know about that yet. That's fair. Fair one and a half. So let's talk about coverage in the back end because. Overall, that was still one of the areas that, that Seattle f- did fairly well over the course of last season. 
their team rated overall still almost elite based on pro, pro football focus's grading uh, in terms of their overall coverage grade but how are you feeling about the loss of all those players do you think they'll be able to sustain their vaunted level of coverage when really they're, they're losing some pro bowl players especially cam chancellor i think a big part of it does hinge upon earl thomas's status uh, especially through the first part of the year because and I would expect him to be there the second half of the year because he's not going to go a full season and not accrue a season, become a free agent in the offseason. But one of the things that we saw, and uh, I mentioned the Hawkpocalypse in the offseason, well, there was also the Thursday Night Massacre where we played the Arizona Cardinals toward the middle of the season last year. And that's when we lost Richard Sherman. That's when we lost Cam Chancellor. And uh, I think even to a certain extent, Bobby Wagner got dinged up in that game. And that was a, a big hit to the defense at that time. Well, going down the stretch last year we had Byron Maxwell come to the team we had Shaquille Griffin you know fill into that role as I'm sure Pete Carroll expected him to and which free them up to uh, apparently make Richard Sherman expendable for this team so they are counting on I think what we saw in that second half of last season to be kind of the the to set the bar for the 2018 season and really, it was a, a pretty good bar that they set. And so when you look at that second half of the season and the way the team performed, I, I think I think there's reason for optimism in the secondary. You know, I think you're right. You look at the the top-rated players that you have. Byron Maxwell, Cam Chancellor, of course, is, is leaving because of injury. You've got Justin Coleman, who played fairly well. And, and then, of, of course, you've got Earl Thomas. Now, what the hell is happening with Earl Thomas? Is he going to be a Cowboy next year or what? Like, what's the deal? Well, it could be next year. But we know that he's not going to the Cowboys this year. If he were going to the Cowboys, it would have happened by now. The, the, the Cowboys apparently hardly offering anything. Um, I think the word that we heard, they were maybe willing to go a third rounder in the draft. And then they really they haven't talked since, according to reports. So I don't think that their price, you know, they're not going to all of a sudden offer more for Earl Thomas. I don't see that happening. Do you and, think they're waiting it out? Do you think it's one of those like we're gonna we're gonna see who flinches first? If they're waiting for the you know, the end of the season, I suppose. But you know, depending on how this plays out, the Seahawks always they already have that option of franchise tagging a player, which they've never done in the Pete Carroll John Schneider era. But if Earl goes out, plays well for the season, and if he if they see that as a value that they can use the the franchise tag for another season. For a player that's going into his 30s, I, I could see that making a lot of sense. It's it's a little it's crazy to me that that Earl Thomas, who is the best safety in football in the scheme that fits him so well, is potentially considered a casualty for the Seahawks. If it were I mean, I would just throw money at him. <laughs> and and I know that you've got some cap issues and whatnot, but at this point you're turning over the roster and you're still able to to maintain, I think, the 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 quarterback of the defense. To, to hold over with some of these new players that are coming in and, and starting in, in new roles, I think that's a benefit. What's, what's going on there in, in Pete Carroll's head that he's like, you know what? I don't need this safety. I don't need like maybe the greatest safety of this generation. Well, I think what kind of threw this offseason into turmoil is what we saw with the safety market. I mean, uh, you guys let go Eric Reed. He's still out there. Uh, we saw Tyron Matthew. Uh, cut from the Cardinals and go to the Texans for like $7 million for a, a one-year deal. So we've really seen this drop uh, in the free safety market, well, even the safety market as a whole. And if I were Earl Thomas, I would absolutely expect to be paid uh, Eric Bear money. That makes, that makes sense to me. 
Absolutely. He deserves it. Pay the man. Right. (laughs) And, but from an organizational standpoint too, we, I'm sure they're looking at it and going, well, geez, there's this, there's this depression in the safety market right now. Maybe we don't need to pay Earl Thomas, Eric Berry money. And, and they could say, well, let's wait it out and see how it goes. Let's see how Earl plays. And we'll address this with the, at the end of the season rather than right now. And maybe they have a little bit of a luxury to do that because they, they do have, I mean, they, they drafted an entire secondary in the 2017 draft and we still really they haven't had seen, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a good thing that they did right with Cam yeah, Chancellor going exactly. down and Richard Sherman going down. It, it would kind of, it, it worked out for them to, to go ahead and do that. But now there's a couple guys on the back end of the defense with Delano Hill and Tedrick Thompson where I think they kind of want to see what they have in them. And from all accounts coming out of training camp and listening to some of the players on defense, some of the veterans like KJ Wright talking up Tedrick Thompson at the free safety spot, it's, it's you kind of, you wonder if maybe that uh, they just see the future in that spot. And that's why they, they went so hard in the off season with the idea that Earl Thomas was available for trade. I don't want to see him go. I really like Earl Thomas, but if they can get similar production for a significantly smaller number, and when you, uh, we haven't talked about pass rush yet, but when you see how the Seahawks look at that spot, that's really where I could see them investing in the future. I just think it's a little it's a little crazy to think that you can get similar production to Earl Thomas at a much cheaper price when you already have Earl Thomas production at a price that's not too outside the market right now. When you think of Earl Thomas's current deal, he's got he's averaging 10 million a year and about 35.6% of his deal is in guaranteed money. Eric Berry's getting 13 million a year and 38% of his total deal was guaranteed. He just signed his later. The the Niners more than anyone know that there are ways to trick the cap to make it seem like a like a huge deal even though it's really not and you're not doing a lot to to give that player extra money. It's all accounting tricks anyway. The the cap is effectively a myth at this point. It just feels like such a weird, arbitrary line to draw when you're when you gave Cam Chancellor, who was an injury risk, an average of twelve million, twelve million a year. Yeah, you know, so you're, you're really quibbling about two or three million dollars for a a a banner player for your franchise. It just seems like a weird, arbitrary line to draw. Well, and I'm fully on board with with you with Earl Thomas. I mean, pay the man. I mean, I know you're. you're I think you might be letting your Texas Longhorn bias uh, be in there a little bit, which is fine. <laughs> yep, that's 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 definitely playing a part, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's fine. But I also think that the Seahawks may be a little gun shy now too, giving the big deal to Richard Sherman, giving a big deal to Cam Chancellor, and now Cam goes out to injury. You know, they have uh, his salary on the books. I think it's like fourteen million in dead money now uh, with him not playing, and then they're also paying Richard Sherman dead money as well to play for the 49ers this year. All right, so let's switch to the pass rush then. You mentioned it earlier, but the pass rush is, of course, where the Seahawks have a bit more concern than in the secondary, despite the flux. Your third highest rated player last year was actually Deion Jordan, believe it or not, but he's banged up. Mm -hmm. Sheldon Richardson is gone. You've got uh, Frank Clark, who has proven that he can step into a larger role and perform. But where is the Seahawks, or where are the Seahawks going to generate their pass rush from, especially given Deion Jordan's injury? That is, that's the big question. And I, I think Frank Clark is the one guy that you can point to as being very consistent. Again, you look to that second half of last season. Now you had Michael Bennett and Frank Clark, but Cliff Averill had gone out by the fourth game last season against the Colts. 
So it really was Bennett and Clark. And I think the team was really counting on Deion Jordan uh, based on his performance last year to fill in Michael Bennett when they let him go. So if there's any of the departures that I see hurting the team the most, uh, I would probably go Cam Chancellor number one. And then uh, number two would be the departure of Michael Bennett because the pass rush is so important. And I don't know, I don't know where it's going to come from. They have uh, quite a few guys that could potentially fill in. But, uh, you know, Rasheem Green was a guy that they drafted out of USC in the third round. There's a question mark. They have Marcus Smith, who was, I think, a, a first-round pick from the Eagles a few years back. There's Barkevius Mingo, who came out of that 2013 draft and was with the Colts. They have guys with first-round talent at that spot and, and then a, a young draft pick at that spot that can all play for that role. But I don't know who that's going to be at this point. Interior, uh, we we did sign Tom Johnson from the Vikings. Now he's you know almost as <laughs> he's in his mid thirties almost, and so there's a question mark in terms of his age. Jaron Reed is a guy that he's been a run stopper, and you wonder if he can maybe develop into a little bit more of a pass rusher with because Michael Bennett did move inside, and so that was usually when Jaron Reed would come off the field. But can he stay on the field and be an interior pass rusher? That's a question. And Nazare Jones, who came out of last year's draft uh, and showed some some real promise on the interior before, and and he ended up with injuries toward the second half of the season. So we never really saw what uh, him develop in that second half. Yeah, Nazare Jones is incidentally much better from the right side than he is the left. His pass rushing productivity was 7.4 from the right, but from the left, oh man, <laughs> not great. Uh, just a 1.8. Well, keep him on the right <laughs> side then. Yeah, definitely. Keep them on the right side. Uh, so overall, I think pass rush is probably going to be the biggest question that you've got on your team. And, and you know that the, the Pete Carroll, of course, structures his defense with the front seven first. You, you don't have to worry about the linebackers, though, because K.J. Wright and Bobby Wagner are two of the, the best linebackers in the NFL. So you, at least you don't have to worry about that. position. That's the one spot on the team where you look at it and you go, you know, we're, we're good there. Bobby and K.J., they have that lockdown. And so let's switch to the offensive side of the ball because this is where it gets a bit more fun for 49ers fans <laughs> because the, the the first question is, and I'm really not sure which question to go with first. I'm not sure whether to go about Schottenheimer or the offensive line. Let's let's go with Schottenheimer as a blanket first, and then we'll we'll get to the offensive line eventually. But the, the core question here is whether or not Brian Schottenheimer's run first offense is going to fail or fail miserably. Because <laughs> Brian Schottenheimer, man, if John Gruden wants to bring you know, kind of the Raiders back to 1996. I think Brian Schottenheimer might actually be the only coach that successfully brings the team back to 1996 based on offense. Daryl Bevel, no longer the offensive coordinator. And while he wasn't great, you think to yourself, okay, now you have an option to go out and get a better coach. You may have actually gotten a worse coach in Brian Schottenheimer as the offensive coordinator. Notable departures, Jimmy Graham, Paul Richardson. Overall, Schottenheimer's philosophy is, and I quote, to have the ability to run the football when people know you are going to run the football. End quote. Yeah, I heard that's that quote. A, I heard, I heard that great. quote too. <laughs> <laughs> that's great for 49ers fans. Well, in, in a way, I guess he's not wrong. I mean, you do want to be able to run the football when people know that you're running the football, especially in situations where the Seahawks were so bad last year. And when I think back to those third and one, third and two, type runs where they just are getting absolutely stuffed. And those are the downs where you need to be able to get one or two yards and get a first down to keep your offense on the field. 
and with Bevel and Tom Cable, that wasn't happening. And I'm I'm in the same boat as you, and I think a lot of Seahawks fans are too. When we saw that Schottenheimer was going to be the guy to take over uh, the Seahawks offense, there was not a lot of excitement. So that said, uh, he's never had a quarterback uh, at, to the level of Russell Wilson. You could say Brett Favre uh, with the Jets for one season, and that was really the best season that he had as an offensive coordinator, right? Hey, you do not besmirch Chad Pennington, okay? <laughs> Chad Pennington of the Wildcat variety, maybe not quite in 2006 when he was with the Jets, but man, Chad Pennington could throw the ball seven miles an hour. Yeah, and he had Sam Bradford all, for all of his injury-plagued years at the Rams. So I I don't know. I, I'm not excited about it, Oscar. You, you know this. <laughs> you, really, you really shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. So... <laughs> This, if you're going to look at, if you're not familiar with Schottenheimer's resume, let's let's run through the most pertinent bits. Yes, he was with the Jets from 2006 to 2011, and of course the Rams from 2012 to 2014. Yeah, Brett Favre, uh, he had Brett Favre with the Jets, Mark Sanchez, he had Bradford with the Rams. Yeah, he had Mark Sanchez for a bit. In those nine seasons, only one of his offenses finished in the top 15 based on offensive DVOA. That distinction goes, of course, to Chad Pennington and the Jets in 2006. There was only one time where his passing offense finished in the top 12. More than 65% of the Rams' runs in that, rhymes, in that Rams period from 2012-2014 came out of two-back sets, meaning that he wants two backs, he wants a fullback, he is going back to old-school football in a way that's not like the, the two-back offense that the 49ers have because the Niners have, of course, a high percentage of two-back sets with Kyle Juszczyk. But they also are more varied in what they do with those two-back sets, and they aren't nearly as predictable. And, oh, yeah, Kyle Shanahan has proven that he can have a ridiculously efficient offense, and Brian Schottenheimer has not done that. So overall, this is just not looking on paper like it's going to be a good fit. And, and I'm curious what you think uh, Pete Carroll saw in, Bra- in Brian Schottenheimer and why he decided to bring him over. Well, I think it fits in right with Pete Carroll's mentality and having that old-school vision of running the football and also you know i don't know if it's necessarily an old school vision of of you know big plays on offense but that's what his vision is is running the football and then getting big chunk plays on offense uh, you know through throwing the ball and i think brian schottenheimer that that kind of based on what we've seen in the past it kind of fits in his philosophy and what he's done too i think the i think where we have to look as seahawks fans though is we looked to last year and how just terrible the running game was. Like, all we need to do is get up to about average in terms of the running game, and Russell Wilson can take care of the rest, right? We we have Russell Wilson, who overcame, you know, all the, the issues that came along with Darrell Bevel as a play caller. You know, I'm, I'm not so convinced that it's really the offensive coordinator who's, you know, has the uh, complete control of the offense. I think this is Pete Carroll, and the way he he views how he wants to run the offense. So I don't even know if it matters if it's Daryl Bevel or Brian Schottenheimer. Did you read the Football Outsiders Almanac, the, the Seattle Seahawks chapter? I, I know that all of the statistics you've quoted with me with Schottenheimer, I, I've already seen those, and I, and I don't know if you need to bring up any more of those. If <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's, there's a paragraph in there, which is the best paragraph, maybe in the entirety of the Football Outsiders Almanac. And it's talking about the Seahawks' uh, red zone rushing DVOA. And it talks about how it's the second worst red zone rushing DVOA they've ever recorded. Huh. They had 43 uh-huh. carries inside the red zone. And they managed just 46 yards. 
29 of those yards came from Russell Wilson or Tyler Lockett instead of running backs. So that just leaves 17 yards on 34 carries. And 20 of those 17 yards on 34 carries uh, came from outside the 10-yard line. So basically, if you look at Seattle's running game in the red zone, inside the 10-yard line, they had 20 carries for negative three yards. So thank goodness for Mike Solari. And, and you have familiarity because that was the he was part of the, the rushing attack for the 49ers when you had Frank Gore kind of in the, the heyday of the, the recent iteration of the, the 49ers. So that's the one spot as a Seahawks fan where we can go, you know what? We can do better than uh, second worst of all time historically in the 2018 season. I mean, that's that's a stretch, though, because Solari. <laughs> so Solari is has been around for a while. He it feels like he's almost had like two or three rounds with the Niners at this point, because I feel like he's had enough time in the NFL to, to coach with every team at least two or three times at this point. And, and his yes, he did have a heyday here with the Niners, and he's probably going to be better than Tom Cable because Tom Cable's awful. But it just seems like that philosophy of trying to pour all of your resources into your running game, it can't end well. When you know that that passing is by far the most effective play in football, when you have an I mean, you have an elite quarterback for goddamn sakes, like Russell Wilson is good at football. And and instead, you're going to be like, you know what? Let's go ahead and give the ball to Mike Davis. Let's go ahead and give it to Chris Carson. Let's go ahead and give it to Rashad Penny, who may not even start, despite the fact that we drafted him in the first round. It just seems like while it seems like finally Pete Carroll is showing his age. And he is regressing and, and latching on to things that the NFL, by and large, is no longer latching on to. Well, when you, when you talk about passing versus running, I mean, you're really talking about what, what's that uh, expected points? Uh, what, what's that stat that everybody looks at? Uh, well, there's a couple different ways to measure it. But by and large, uh, I mean, even if you're just going to use yardage, right, it's, it's more effective than running the ball um both but the key one that we've talked about before is expected points added yes, yes. uh well i mean generally yes you're when you throw the ball you're going to get more yards down the field than when you run the ball right i mean that's that's obvious i yep. think there it's an interesting argument that i'm hearing as far as i i don't know if if people are on this pass versus run thing as as you should pass all the time because yeah if you want to have a high scoring game i mean by all means, throw the ball on both sides, and it makes for exciting games. I mean, the the Texans game against the Seahawks last year was one of the more exciting games that that I've seen in a while. And they put a they put a lot of balls in the air, and they scored a lot of points. But I think that's I, and so when you talk about the old school mentality, I mean, you don't necessarily have to score forty points unless you have a terrible defense. And Pete Carroll is a guy who doesn't count on having a terrible defense. So really, you only need to score more points than the opponent. And so I don't know if you need to pass it all the time. And, and that's where I think that the argument of passing versus running, it, it gets into an interesting, it's an interesting argument for me, but I, I don't think it, I don't think you can discount running the football entirely. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, right? And that you don't want to discount running the ball entirely, but I think that there is, there's a line where, I think you should only run the ball insofar as it 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 is beneficial to run the ball because you're running against a super light box or it is actually advantageous in that regard. I think absolutely if you can throw up 50 or 60 points, throw up 50 or 60 because then you're going to win. That's the whole point of football, right? That's why they keep the score. And and if you can throw up 50, 60, 70, 80 points, 
and do it. And I think you absolutely should. I do think you're right. There is a line of diminishing returns when it comes to passing the ball 100% of the time. But I think that's probably more to do with with numbers. And I do think there's a level of kind of keeping teams honest and making play action be a, a bit more effective. But I think that line's probably only 30% of running. I don't think it requires throwing a, a first round pick at a running back. And, and I don't think that it requires doing some of the things that the Seahawks seem like they are want to do. And, and when you think about the effectiveness of the offensive line, you think of a, a, an offensive line that should really focus on getting better as a pass blocking unit. And, and they're really not. And the, you, you think of German Effetti was pulled from a mock game in camp due to his consistent penalties. Dwayne Brown, finally an upgrade. You've got J.R. Sweezy, but he's an injury risk. Mm-hmm. Um, is this another year where the offensive line, irrespective of coach, is just not going to be able to overcome the fact that they're not very talented? Well, you know, the, the talent question is interesting because you look at every one of the picks of the guys who are potentially starting, um, with the exception of J.R. Sweezy, you know, being a seventh round pick back in what was that, the, the 2012 draft. And every one of those guys are first and second round pick. You know, Justin Britt, second round. Ethan Posick, second round. Dwayne Brown, he was a first rounder. Uh, Jermaine Effetti, a first rounder. And then, you know, they brought in DJ Fluker to potentially pay, play right guard. And I don't know if he's going to end up being at that spot, but uh, they have plenty of talent. Now, that's I guess there's the question of if they evaluated the talent property, properly, right? You, you can draft guys in the first and second round all you want, but if they they aren't talented, uh, that's where the, the coaching thing comes into question. And Tom Cable, you know, was he getting enough out of these guys? And if you now change out your offensive line coach and go to Mike Solari and, and then ultimately those players don't work out on the offensive line, then I think you have to look at the scouting department, right? And say, we aren't getting the the talent out of these rounds that we think we are. So there there are questions there. Um, You know, you brought up something that was interesting with the, when we were talking about numbers and the uh, effective effectiveness of the, uh, of hand on the, or uh, the play fakes to the running back, right? Uh, uh, Dropping back. And it turns out, go back to that that Texans game, and even though the the Seahawks were so bad at running the ball, uh, that still worked. You know, uh, play action passing, it, it still worked, they, <laughs> which is crazy to me. And I don't know if that's a, a function of the offense or just maybe the Texans defense and not recognizing that uh, the Seahawks were were having just a terrible year at running back. I mean, it's probably true that the that the Texas defense, the Texans defense is uniquely terrible. They did not have a great year last year. And so it's it's probably not, you know, and the Niners beat the, the Texans as well. I'm not going to go ahead and put a feather in my cap for beating the Texans based on the quality of their defense. But you're, you're absolutely right. The effectiveness of your running game has little to no bearing on the effectiveness of play action, which is why it makes little to no sense to pour as many resources into the running game as you seem to want to do. If anything, you should be like, hey, Russell Wilson, man, let's do this. you got one of the best wide receivers in football, Doug Baldwin. You've got Russell Wilson, who's amazing. Uh, you've got, I actually think Jaron Brown could be an interesting speed option for mm-hmm. you guys. Someone that, someone that you added in the, in the offseason. He, he was the speed guy in Arizona, and, and you just need someone who can take the top off because Russell Wilson can do stupid, crazy things when he's running around and just chucks it deep. And, and so I think he might actually be a, a, a decent asset in the passing game. But I think the, that's where this is where I think it's going to be interesting to see if Pete Carroll is actually going to stay true to what he says out loud or if he's going to do what 
modern offenses almost require, and that is to put the ball in, in your hands of, of the elite playmaker that you've got. Because that's the one reason why I think that Seattle is consistently rated, at least based on Football Outsiders and Pro, pro Football Focus, as the second-best team in the division based on expected wins. And, and it all has to do with Russell Wilson, 100% Russell Wilson. If you had an average quarterback, you would easily be third in the division and you're um, maybe an injury or two away to a star defender from being last. But you've got Russell Wilson, and that changes everything. Well, absolutely. I, when I look at these predictions of 4-12 and 12 or 5-11 and 11 for the Seahawks, I, I laugh at those because we have Russell Wilson. And if we didn't, yeah, that would, that would make absolute sense. If we had an average quarterback, yeah, 4-12, and 5-11, and 11, okay, sure. But, but Wilson is back there, and we saw what happened. I, I keep going back to the second half of last season. He was completely working outside of the structure of the offense. It was just, we, we called them scribble plays, Oscar, where you just, Russell Wilson dropped back, and he just ran around until he either found somebody who was open or he ran the ball for a few yards. And that's, it, that was the entirety of the offense, and they still went 4-4 four and four last season. So I think they do want to get Russell back into some structured offense this year. And, you know, when you talk about Pete Carroll and whether or not he is, if they're going to do what he says, I don't think the Seahawks are going to, I don't think we're going to see, you know, Joe Gibbs style uh, running game for the Seahawks. I still think we're going to see uh, a pretty similar type of offense for Seattle that we saw in 2013, 2014, when they were actually able to run the ball with Marshawn Lynch. I think the offense is going to look more like that than it is to going, you know, completely toward the run. And that's why I'm, I'm not so down on, on the offense in terms of that. I, I don't think it's, yeah, you know, Rex Ryan, when he had, uh, and, and when Schottenheimer was with him and they had Mark Sanchez and they just had the training wheels on him and they're, you know, handing off to Ladanian Tomlinson at the end of his career. I don't see that for this team. I, I see them still taking shots downfield. You mentioned Jerron Brown. There's Doug Baldwin. Yeah, they, they did lose Jimmy Graham, but I mean, Tyler Lockett's still there. I just don't think there's going to be necessarily that go-to guy at tight end like we had with Graham. And we didn't really have that much much success as an offense, except when we got into the red zone, it was, you know, throw it to Jimmy Graham because we couldn't run the ball. And as you pointed out earlier. All right, so let's get your, your on-the-record answer to each one of these questions. Number one, do you think that the defense is going to be able to sustain its traditional high level of play in 2018? I think they will be a top six or seven defense. Based on what metric? Yardage? Uh, based on points. The most important uh, okay. metric. So point, points allowed. Yeah, fair, 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 fair. All right, so is Brian Schottenheimer's run first offense going to fail or fail miserably? <laughs> you can choose another one of those if you don't feel that that false dichotomy gives you what you need. It's going to be okay. I think we'll be, I, I think we'll improve to average. You know, say the top, you know, 15, 16. No, well, uh, in, say in, in 15, 15 to 20 in terms of in terms of rushing yards. Uh, OK, so in rushing yards alone or like overall, I'm, I'm pinning you down here, man. Yeah. I need some Twitter fodder. <laughs> I, 15 to 20 in, in rushing yards. I, in terms of one through 32 ranking. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking you. Yeah, man. I think they will be above the bottom 20. Or the, the, uh, I think they'll be in the top 20. Ooh, that's a that's a low bar. <laughs> top top twenty in rushing. All we yards. have to do okay. is not be terrible. You know, historically <laughs> terrible, like last season. 
I'm telling you. Oh, man. That's, Dude, your leading rusher last year was your quarterback. Yeah, I know. And then it was Mike Davis and, you know, J.D. McKissick was the only dude who had a rushing touchdown and it came in week four against the Indianapolis Colts. And it was 30 yards out from the end zone. Man. It was the one just... rushing touchdown that came from a, from with, that wasn't Russell Wilson. And, yeah, and it means, I mean, I guess you could say like, you know, if you're, if your quarterback is, you know, Michael Vick or even Colin Kaepernick is in his prime, you might understand how that quarterback could get, you know, seven or 800 yards. And then you've got another seven or 800 from a back, but like R- Russell Wilson didn't even try and he was your leading rusher by a good bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He didn't even have to try. And so when you're asking me all these questions, Oscar, about why the Seahawks are investing so many resources into the running game. It's because it was historically bad last year. It was so bad. So they had to do something. And we've seen, you know, when you have an elite quarterback, it doesn't necessarily really matter who you're throwing to. When you have Doug Baldwin, I mean, you can go out and get a guy like Jerron Brown. You can go, and you can rely on Tyler Lockett to come back. And you can bring in a, a, an old Brandon Marshall and as a red zone target. And, you know, just have expect just average productivity out of your tight ends and i think they can be fine if they just improve in the running game i do think brandon marshall's gonna be basically your jimmy graham replacement yeah um i I don't don't think brandon marshall is is what he was but he's decent he's big um fun fact about brandon marshall he actually had a, a nearly identical line to another player uh 32 targets for brandon marshall with the giants this other player has 31 targets brandon marshall had a 62.2 overall grade from pff can, uh, and, and this player had a 62.7. But this player that I'm talking about had double the yards per reception. That player, Kendrick Bourne, plays for the Niners. I thought that was super interesting. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, because he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah, again, he's, when, when you have a team with good receivers, uh, players like Brandon Marshall are buried on the depth chart, is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I do think Brandon Marshall is going to be a red zone target. And I do think you're right that, the the quarterback is going to be able to gloss over a lot of things but man throw your resources into the offensive line don't throw them into into the running into the running back and throw them on pass blocking uh uh people like Dwayne Brown don't throw them on weirdos like Jared Sweezy who are going to get injured <laughs> well so that, and that's, that's why la- it's been refreshing that we actually saw them you know resign Justin Britt and then sign Dwayne Brown you know they they traded uh you know a second and third round pick for him and then they they did get him that contract extension. Yes, he's old, but I could I still expect him to have two or three good years left in him. Joe Staley will tell you that being old uh, doesn't matter, especially right. when you have a, a young buddy. Yes. Uh, so last question is going to be whether or not the offensive line is going to be any better. And, and we'll kind of go both in, in the pass blocking game and in the run blocking game. Ooh, I have to break it down individually, huh? Hey, man, one of them matters. The other does not. <laughs> well. I in both cases, can you say that it really gets any worse? I mean, in terms of quarterback pressures last year, wasn't <laughs> Russell Wilson in the top five? And, yeah, he was. And, forty-two sacks. I think forty-two sacks last year. Yeah, and and that seems to work okay for him. <laughs> he, he, as long as <laughs> as long as he knows where the pressure is coming from, and it's going to be from the right side of the line. I mean, we we know that, and uh, and so as long as he he knows where it's coming from, I. I do expect that left side of the line with Dwayne Brown, Ethan Posick in his second year, and then Justin Britt at center. I, I feel like that part is pretty solid. It's the right side of the line that I have a ton of questions about, and that's what I'm going to be watching in the preseason. I think in terms of passing, 
I think that they're going to be a, a better unit because they're they're really going to focus on Russell Wilson working within the structure of the offense. I think having a better running game is going to slow the pass rush down a little bit, and and that's what I'm I'm counting on in in the passing game and the running game. Yeah, it, it can't get any worse. So of course it's got to be better. <laughs> oh man, famous last words. It can't get any worse. That's, can it? Again, you, you just told me it was the second worst historically inside the red zone. So uh, yeah. you know, I guess it can get worse. Whoever that one team was that was worse. Yeah. Than us. <laughs> hey man, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Careful what you wish for. And then last question, unrelated to the three, but what are you most excited to watch in 2018 for the Seattle Seahawks? Oh, always excited to watch Russell Wilson. I'm excited to see Shaquem Griffin. Um, and he may not be a starter on the team, but in terms of the preseason, he's going to be one that, that I watch to see if he can develop into an NFL caliber talent. Uh, I'm excited. I'm, you mentioned, you kind of poo-pooed this idea about Chris Carson, um, you know, taking over and being the number one running back over Rashad Penny, the number one draft pick this offseason. That's not a bad thing if it happens, by the way. You know, a lot of people saying, oh, well, if Rashad Penny isn't the, the starter for the Seahawks, you know, what a waste of a draft pick. No, we saw what happened last season when Carson went down. It was entirely, I mean, Eddie Lacy was no good. Um, and and we had our, our third round pick, CJ Procise, down to injury again. So all these injuries, you know, compacted with, compounded with a bad decision of, to sign Eddie Lacy. We let uh, Alex Collins go to the Ravens and he runs for almost a thousand yards. And when we watched well, in the preseason, think, it wasn't that we looked at that and got and, and said, oh, it's going to be so terrible to let Alex Collins go. You looked at him and you go, yeah, that's that's the worst dude out of the running back group. Well, I think that's kind of it is the the idea that the running back position is a little bit of a dime a dozen. And if you guys are throwing money at Eddie Lacy, it that's that's poor evaluation. It's not a it's not a lack of running back talent out in the market. Um, I'll give you guys, and maybe I'll send this tip to John Schneider, although I'm sure he's probably checking the, the waiver wire at this point. But the Niners are going to cut a running back, and that running back is either going to be Raheem Mostert or it's going to be Joe Williams. Either one of those running backs would have done just as well as a backup running back to Chris Carson than a first-round pick. So this it's just a misapplication of resources where you could have spent that first-round pick on an offensive lineman. You could have spent that first-round pick on maybe a safety to replace <laughs> Earl Thomas because apparently you don't want to pay that guy. Sure. You, you could have applied that you could have gotten a tackle. Um, even, you know, like, and even if there wasn't a tackle available in that area because your pick was so late, you just you think of the application of resources and you think, okay, I can probably get a running back that can do what I need him to do, especially if Chris Carson's going to be my dude. Um, I can pick them up off the street or I can find some other inefficiency somewhere to be able to do that. Don't need to spend a first round pick there. If they would have gone right tackle or pass rush with that first round pick, I would have been fine with it. I would have been fine. But I think Pete Carroll may be trying to send a little bit of a message to how things went last year and saying, we can't have that in the run game again. And we've invested a ton in the I I think I I saw a stat for the Seahawks that said they've had they've invested more in terms of draft capital just in the last three or four years than any other team. So he may be saying, yeah, we've we've done that there. Now we have to do running back, and that's the only way I can explain it. Uh, I know a lot of Seahawks fans don't necessarily like that that uh, that strategy, but that's what happened. And now we're going with the guys that we have. And I just I have to expect improvement in the running game. 
Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a big, we'll see <laughs> in terms of this year, but as you, as you keep pointing out, we, we still got Russell Wilson and you know, we, he, he seems to do pretty well as long as he stays in the game. I think we're going to be doing all right. And I don't know how we've made it this far, Oscar. And you haven't even thanked me once for that, that week 12 game of the 49ers against the Seahawks where you guys came in one and 10 and uh, who who is your quarterback going into that game uh, against the Seahawks? Oh, I have uh, no idea. I've got I've I've there's like a post Jimmy and pre Jimmy <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, you know it's kind of like AD or a BC and AD. There is after the Savior and there is before. Yeah, CJ Beathard was the quarterback the in that game. He went oh, twenty two for thirty eight for two hundred and one yards. An interception was sacked three times. Quarterback rating a sixty one point four. Oh, and then uh, and then he went down to injury. Um, yes, you're welcome. And Jimmy G comes in and has goes two for two, throws a touchdown pass, uh, 143.7 quarterback rating. And then what do you guys do right after that? Oh, rattle off five straight, straight wins to, to close out the season. Yeah, man, it's great. <laughs> all I remember is a quarterback throwing a touchdown against the Seahawks. Yeah. That's all I remember <laughs> uh, with like five plays in. All right, so let's get to a season prediction lightning round. We, we like to do this with guests that we have on going to be nine questions uh, or actually eight questions super quick just give me the first thing that jumps into your head some of them football related uh one of them not just because i'm actually interested in getting everyone's answer on this one so all right here we go all right number one offensive player of the year for the seahawks that's basically a player that is not a quarterback go chris carson <laughs> you are on that bandwagon <laughs> <laughs> all right uh let give me the best cheeseburger you've ever had Ooh. We have a place here, and and there's just a few places in Washington. Frugal's is is my favorite cheeseburger. Awesome. Is it like like the your regular cheeseburger? Is there something special about that cheeseburger that makes it awesome? No, they just have some special sauce on it. It's and and it's cheap. I like it. Our right, defensive player of the year. That's going to be Shaquille Griffin. All right, I like it. I like the confidence. Uh, Shaquille, not Shaquem, for Correct. those of you keeping yes, track. The corner, at home. the cornerback, Griffin. Yep. That's exactly right. Not the uh, not the soon to be linebacker replacement for uh, KJ Wright. KJ Wright. Uh, all right, the player most likely to make their first Pro Bowl for the Seahawks, Frank Clark. I like that. That's a good one. Uh, rookie of the year. Rookie of the year will be. Gosh, um, that's gonna. Oh, Michael Dixon, our punter. Our, he's gonna be our new punter. Thank you. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was like, if you didn't say Michael Dixon, you don't know your audience, clearly. Yeah. Uh, drafted him in the fifth round. He is. He was graded by far as the best punter in college last year from Pro Football Focus. He is amazing. He's awesome. And he went to Texas. You're welcome. <laughs> See, there's the, there's the Texas bias coming through again. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You got it. You got, hey, look, I've got a brand to uphold. Uh-huh. I, mispron- I mispronounce names. And I am just a rabid lover Texas of Texas punters. <laughs> Texas punters and kickers, man. I love them. Uh, rushing leader, Rashad Penny, Chris Carson, or Russell Wilson? I feel like you've got some consistency to worry about here. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it will be Carson. But it is, it's the question. I mean, you have three guys who, can, who might all be pretty close there. Yeah. All right. And over or under the number of times that Russell Wilson is sacked, the line is at 42. Gosh. 
have to pick over or under uh, 40. Uh, you know what? It might be one under. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to go under and say it's like 40, 41. All right. And then finally, the final record total number of wins for the Seahawks this year. Ten wins. Ten wins. Ten and six. Now, is that nine wins with one playoff win? Is that ten <laughs> wins in the season? And then, you know, you, you don't get to play a playoff game because it's a stacked NFC. What's what's that's the my, what's the final outcome here? That's my regular p- season prediction. And it's going to be it's going to be a question if 10 wins is good enough to get into the playoffs. Right. Yeah, man. The NFC is stacked. It yeah. really is. They should. I think they should just remove a playoff team from the AFC and move it over to the NFC just for competitive balance because nobody wants to see the Tennessee Titans at, you know, seven wins make it into the playoffs or something. I mean, the Jaguars almost made it to the Super Bowl last year. Nobody wants that. Oh, man, they were good, though. I love I'm I'm here for that Jaguars defense. Oh, yeah, for the defense. Sure. But I don't want to see Blake Bortles (laughs) throwing the ball in the Super Bowl. Oh, man, that actually I there's a little piece of me that like giggles thinking at the prospect of Blake Bortles playing in the Super Bowl. I want I want Teddy Bridgewater to go from the Jets down to the Jaguars. I think oh, that would be fair. ideal. That's fair. All right, man. Well, that does it. Thanks for uh, for coming on and uh, and for talking Seahawks. Uh, where can they get to your podcast if they want to get some more some more info, especially on the weeks where we're going to play you yes. uh, so they can listen to you and Adam? Uh, all, you can wait all the way until December uh, when we have al- almost back-to-back <laughs> games against the 49ers. That'll be fun. Uh, but check us out, seahawkerspodcast.com, and we're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, so uh, you can find us all those places. Brandon, it's always a pleasure to chat, and thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, Oscar. Go. Oh, man, such a shame that the intro music just kind of came in over the last part of his interview. Huh. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Tune in next week where we bring you another breakdown, another division preview for the stacked NFC West. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. And as always, go Niners. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.